Welcome to the show. Five months ago, I posted a presentation about the U.S. government presuming it can tax the growth in value of investment income without that gain being taken by the investor. Phrased another way, the government asserts it can tax the increase in value of an investment despite the fact that the gain has not been separated from the capital and as such is not available for use by the investor. When I did this story five months ago, it garnered little interest because the public perceived this matter as an arcane point of tax law. As I made clear in the presentation, it is anything but an arcane point of law. Its implications and potential consequences for every American are highly disturbing. I'm offering you another look at the presentation today because interest in the subject has skyrocketed since the Wall Street Journal recently ran a story about the controversy. As you get into the presentation, you'll understand why this is a critical issue for every American, not just investors. Make sure to watch to the end because that's where you'll find shocking information about how the government has fooled the American people into volunteering to pay an income tax imposed on government-granted privileges, even though your pay and the activity that creates your pay are constitutionally protected rights. That story is as fascinating as it is disturbing, so make sure to watch till that part. Enjoy. Welcome to the vodcast. As you're hearing my voice today, the Internal Revenue Service is violating well-settled constitutional law, and the U.S. Supreme Court just accepted a case challenging what the IRS is doing. It would be difficult to overstate the changes that would occur in the United States tax system if the Supreme Court gets this one wrong. The bottom line is, if the court gets this one wrong, Congress will be able to tax anything and everything at any time, and you'll have no recourse. Americans will see their tax burden skyrocket. The good news is that well-settled Supreme Court case law on the subject is substantial and unequivocal. Let's take a look. The Dr. Reality Vodcast with Dave Champion. Let's start with this. There haven't been any changes to the U.S. Constitution regarding the limits placed on Congress concerning federal taxation. The limits on taxation in the Constitution make what the IRS is doing blatantly unconstitutional. So why are they doing it? What the IRS is doing is pursuant to a plan hatched by Joe Biden and Janet Yellen, Biden's Secretary of the Treasury. Their plan hopes to achieve an end run by judicial fiat around the limits the Constitution places on Congress's taxing authority. In other words, while the Constitution can be changed through the amendment process, that requires a majority of Americans to support a proposed change. Biden knows he could never get the American people to remove the taxing limits in the Constitution, so he wants the courts to do what the American people would refuse. Coincidentally, I spoke about just that roughly a month ago in this segment. There are two camps on constitutional interpretation. 
One is the originalist view, holding the documents mean exactly what the men who wrote it intended when they wrote the words and the states ratified those words. The originalist model also seeks to identify the principles of liberty and good governance behind the Constitution's wording and carry those principles forward into our modern circumstances. An example of that would be the principle of freedom of the press. It exists just as much today when we employ computers, super high-speed industrial printing, or an online digital presence as when cutting-edge technology was a hand-cranked wooden printing press. The other model is the living document theory, which takes the view that in order for the Constitution to be durable over the long haul, the original meaning of the founders must give way to new interpretations based on the circumstances of modern society. As I'm speaking with you today, I'm 63 years old, and I've only ever seen the living document model advanced with two goals intended. One is to alter the form of the federal government from a representative democracy to some other form. The second is to do away with certain rights belonging to we the people or substantially truncate them. In my opinion, the living document model is despicable. Here's why. If people want to change the form of the federal government, Okay, the Constitution contains a means of doing exactly that. It's called the amendment process. The Constitution literally contains instructions about how we the people can alter anything we want in the Constitution. A proposed amendment requires ratification by two-thirds of the states to become part of the Constitution. So, for simplicity of illustration, if we say the population of all states is equal, then at this moment in time, it would require 222,500,000 Americans to agree that making a particular modification to the Constitution is what we want. By contrast, those who support the living document model seek to reduce the number of Americans needed to make a change from 220,500,000 to only the nine Supreme Court justices, or more accurately, five of the nine justices. Basically, they're looking to overthrow the U.S. Constitution by judicial fiat. The other reason I find the living document model despicable is the Founding Fathers were crystal clear that the government is not the source of our rights. In the earliest days of our nation, the Supreme Court held that our rights existed antecedent to the formation of the states or the federal government, therefore the states and the federal government have no authority to alter or abolish those rights. Yet the goal of those who support the living document model is to eradicate or severely truncate rights they don't like and don't want you exercising. And again, in a nation of 334 million people, they want just five people to eradicate or truncate your rights. In that clip, I mentioned rights. And you may be thinking this issue doesn't involve rights. And you'd be wrong about that. The American people have the right of property. The Founding Fathers spoke extensively of that right as essential to the meaning and enjoyment of personal liberty. While all taxation is, in its nature, an intrusion upon that right, the federal constitution in particular limits Congress's authority to intrude into your right of property. Now that you understand the tactic Biden is using, let me be clear with you about the gravity of the situation we face. If we analogize Congress's taxing authority to the authority police have when interacting with you, for the Supreme Court to accept Biden's unconstitutional action, it would be the equivalent of alleviating the police from needing reasonable suspicion to detain you, probable cause to arrest you, or a warrant to search your home. It is that critical. 
If the Supreme Court gets this one wrong, it will be crossing a red line from which America will never find its way back without violence. Those are strong words, yes? So what qualifies me to make such a pronouncement? I'm the author of Income Tax Shattering the Myths, which is the product of 17 years of research that tells the American people the truth about what income tax law actually says, which is that Congress has never imposed the income tax on ordinary working Americans. That it does apply to ordinary working Americans is a myth propagated by 60 years of government disinformation and propaganda. Before I get into what the law says relevant to the matter we're discussing today, let me tell you I haven't filed an income tax return or paid a penny of income tax in 30 years. I've been informing the American people about the truth of the income tax for more than 20 years, and I authored the best-selling book in America on the subject. Yet, here I sit, unmolested by the government. Why? Because when you know what tax law really says— as opposed to having accepted the idiotic false narrative put out by the government, the government will leave you alone. But you do absolutely need to know what the law really says. This is not one of those things you can just wing. You need to see the law with your own eyes. Once you know what the law says, you can walk away safely from the government scam. I share all of that to make the point that I know more about the origins, meaning, and limitations of Congress's taxing authority than almost anyone in the country. I'm certainly the most knowledgeable person on those matters in the private sector. With that behind us, I should tell you Biden won this case in both the district court and at the Ninth Circuit Court, so the Supreme Court is our last stand. Can we trust the Supreme Court to get it right? That's a tough question. I'm sure you've heard of the 16th Amendment, even if you're not sure what it is or what it did. I'll say two things today about the 16th. First, According to the U.S. Supreme Court, the amendment did not do anything like what high school history books say it did. What you find in high school textbooks is part of the massive government disinformation campaign I mentioned a moment ago. Second, and more germane to this discussion, the 16th was necessary because the Supreme Court made an incorrect decision about the income tax in 1895 in the Pollock case. The 16th was needed to correct the improper holding in Pollock. My point is that... When you wonder whether the current Supreme Court can be trusted to make the right decision, you should know that an earlier Supreme Court got it wrong. The good news is that in a series of cases after Pollock between 1916 and roughly the early 1930s, the court made up for that early error with a slew of accurate and precise holdings concerning Congress's limited ability to tax the American people. Quick, name one of those cases. Sorry. But I had to do that to drive home the point that Americans are completely ignorant of what income tax law says and how limited Congress's taxing authority is. In the course of showing you why Biden's actions are unconstitutional, you're going to learn about some of those limitations today. Before I move forward, I need to point out that while Biden and his Secretary of the Treasury initiated this unconstitutional action, they are not doing so in a vacuum. They are relying on a statute passed by a... Republican Congress in 2017 and signed by Donald Trump, a Republican president. I tried to warn people about the problems with the GOP tax bill in 2017, but as usual, Americans had zero interest in actually reading the bill because it was easier to just believe the media when it told them they'd get a tax cut. Among a number of problems with that legislation, we now find ourselves facing a constitutional crisis because of it. With all that said, 
I'm encouraged by the fact that the Supreme Court decided to hear the matter because if the justices agreed with the Ninth Circuit, the court could have simply rejected the case and the Ninth's decision would stand. They didn't do that. So what is this unconstitutional action being pursued by the Biden administration and supported by Republicans who passed the legislation and the GOP president who signed it into law? What the law purports to permit is the government to tax you on income you have not received. How is that for nifty? Imagine you were entitled to a significant payout on a project down the road, but the IRS decides it's going to tax you on that payment now, even though you haven't received the income. Where would you get the money to pay a tax on money you haven't received? This is not hypothetical. This court case exists because the IRS did exactly that. The IRS sent a married couple a tax bill for money concerning which the couple had not taken possession. To put it in a way you're going to hear in case law, under Biden, the IRS is taxing gains on investment capital even though the gains remain in the custody of a third party and have not yet been separated from the capital for the taxpayer's use. And as you're about to see, that is 100% in opposition to the decisions of the Supreme Court. But more importantly, in those decisions, the Supreme Court is articulating the constitutional boundaries of Congress's power to tax. The court is confirming the limits the Constitution imposes on Congress. I hope every American is aware that in Norton v. Shelby County, the Supreme Court held that, quote, an unconstitutional act is not a law. It confers no right. It imposes no duties. It affords no protection. It creates no office. It is in legal contemplation as inoperative as though it had never been passed. Close quote. In other words, while the Republicans passed this abortion into law, Biden is violating the Constitution and his oath of office by enforcing it on the American people. And Biden is knowingly doing so because the case law is crystal clear. In April of 2022, I discussed this exact matter. I discussed what the Supreme Court has said about whether the government has the constitutional authority to tax gains that have not been separated from capital. Before I share that with you, I want you to know I'm going to send a copy of Income Tax Shattering the Mist to the plaintiff's attorney to ensure he knows everything you're going to learn right now. And with that, let's get into what the Supreme Court has said on this subject, thus confirming Biden is knowingly violating the law. Enjoy. About two years ago, I did a presentation on capital gains. Who owes it? And again, more importantly, who doesn't? Second, if you're unfamiliar with the Supreme Court's various decisions over the decades about matters such as direct tax and indirect taxes as it pertains to the income tax, some of the quotes I'm going to share with you may lack meaningful context because you're unfamiliar with what the court was actually trying to say, but just go with it in terms of the definition of income, which is what we're talking about. Whenever we consider the income tax, there are three factors or three elements that bear upon the legality, the constitutionality of income tax. The first is Congress's inherent right to impose a tax on certain people for certain activities. Number two, the slight modification made by the 16th Amendment. And number three, the various tax acts passed after the adoption of the 16th Amendment. The good news is we don't need to get into all that in order to discuss the meaning and definition of income for the purpose of the income tax. All we have to do is look at what the United States Supreme Court has said. Let's start with Merchant Loan and Trust v. Smetanka. Its uh, site, if you want to look it up and read it for yourself, is 255-US-509. 
United States Supreme Court, 1921. And here's a quote. Income must be given the same meaning in all the income tax acts of Congress that it was given in the Corporate Excise Tax Act. And what that meaning is has become definitely settled by the decisions of this court. Close quote. The Merchant Court continues with this. Quote, In determining the definition of the word income thus arrived at, this court has consistently refused to enter into the refinements of lexographers and economists and has approved in the definitions quoted what it believed to be the commonly understood meaning of the term which must have been in the minds of the people when they adopted the 16th Amendment to the Constitution. Close quote. In other words, a merchant the United States Supreme Court was saying that the term income, the meaning of the term income, had to be the same as in the Corporate Tax Act of 1909 as in the tax acts of 1913, 1916, and 1917. Now, the important part about this is that the 16th Amendment was adopted in 1913, the early part of 1913. So the Corporate Excise Tax Act of 1909 was pre-16th Amendment, and the other three tax acts that the court is considering in Merchant were post-enactment of the 16th Amendment. And what the court is saying is that the definition of income has to be consistent from all, through all of those acts. In other words, the meaning that it was given before the 16th Amendment is the same meaning it has after the 16th Amendment, because when the people of the United States adopted the 16th Amendment, the definition that was applicable to the Corporate Excise Tax Act of 1909, to quote the court, must have been in their minds. The next case relevant to our inquiry is Eisner v. McComber. Again, the citation, if you want to look it up and read it for yourself, is 252 U.S. 189. It was decided in 1920. Since we're talking about cases that were decided back in the early 20th century, I want to take a moment to share that these are still good decisional law in the United States. The Supreme Court has not reversed any of these cases, either in whole or in part. So these stand, as I'm recording this in 2021, as the law of the land. All right, so on to the text from Eisner McComber. Income is derived from capital, the gain derived from capital, etc. Here we have the essential matter, not gain accruing to capital, not growth or incremental of value in the investment, but a gain, a profit, something of exchangeable value, severed from capital, however invested or employed, and coming in, being, quote, derived, that is received or drawn by the recipient for his separate use, benefit, and disposal. That is the income derived from property. Nothing else answers the description. We can clearly see that the court has determined the definition of income in terms of being able to tax income is that the gain or profit from an investment must be, to quote the court, received or drawn by the recipient from for his separate use, benefit, and disposal. Janet Yellen, really? Unrealized capital gains? The Supreme Court has said unrealized gains are not income subject to taxation. Now let's discuss one of the key restrictions that the Founding Fathers built into the federal government's ability to tax. That comes from Bruce Schaber v. Union Pacific Railroad. And again, the citation, if you want to look it up and read it for yourself, is 240 U.S. 1. This case is from 1916. And quote, quoting the court, concluding that the classification of direct was adopted for the purpose of rendering it 
impossible to burden by taxation, accumulation of property, real or personal, except subject to the regulation of apportionment. In other words, the Supreme Court is saying that the income tax cannot be used to burden the accumulation of property, or phrased a way that might make more sense here in 2021, the court was saying that the income tax cannot be used to burden the accumulation of wealth. And this from Bruce Shaver, quote, moreover, in addition, the conclusion reached in the Pollock case recognized the fact that taxation on income was, in its nature, an excise entitled to be enforced as such unless or until it was concluded that the that to enforce it would amount to accomplishing the result which the requirement as to apportionment of direct taxation. Okay, I'll translate that for you. The court was saying that the income tax is an excise. We're going to get into that in a moment. And it's entitled to be enforced as an excise until enforcing the tax that's supposed to be an excise actually burdens the accumulation of wealth. At that point, it fails to be an excise. All of the exact, specific, and complex reasons that that is true, you'll have to find an income tax generally the best. I can't do it here in a video. You can't translate 408 pages into a video. So just roll with me on this for now. In those quotes from Bruce Schaber, you heard the court talk about direct and indirect taxes. So let's talk about direct for a moment. Direct taxes under the federal system are more narrow than the generalized term direct taxes. Direct taxes, as that term was meant by the Founding Fathers when they placed it in the United States Constitution, meant a tax on land or slaves. That was confirmed in the 1796 Housing case and again in the 1895 Pollock case. And of course, since the 13th Amendment, obviously there's no more slaves. So a direct tax for the purpose of federal taxation applies exclusively to land. When we consider the income tax, there's either direct or indirect. And as we've just discussed, there is no federal direct tax. So the income tax must be an indirect tax. And there are several forms of indirect taxation, but when it comes to the income tax, the only one that's relevant is something called an excise tax. So the court has already stated in one of the previous quotes that we heard that the income tax is in its nature an excise. So what is an excise tax? Well, according to the federal courts, this from American Airways v. Wallace, quote, the term excise tax and privilege tax are synonymous. The two are often used interchangeably, close quote. As an aside, were you aware that working for somebody else or hiring people to work for you has been adjudicated by the federal courts to be a constitutionally protected right? It is a fundamental right. It's not a privilege. So if it's not a privilege, then how can an excise tax, which is a privilege tax, we just heard that from the federal court, then how, come, how can money be taken out of your paycheck to pay an excise privilege tax for something which is, when you do it, a fundamental right? The answer is as simple as uh, it's probably going to be disturbing to you. It's because you filled out a Form W-4, which is you attesting under penalty of perjury that you are in this tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people for whom earning a living in the United States is not a right, but a privilege, therefore subject to the income tax. So you signed under penalty of perjury that you're in that tiny, 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 tiny group of people for whom earning a living in the United States is not a right, but a privilege. 
along the same lines, owning a business and performing whatever it is you, your business does for other people or other companies is also a constitutionally protected right, not a privilege. So how is the fruits of that subject to an excise privilege tax, the income tax, when all you're doing is exercising a fundamental right? And of course, we've, we know that, that no government within the United States can tax any right. So how is it that what you do is taxed as a privilege when it's actually a right? Well, just like people who work for others, people who own businesses fill out a form W-9, which again is them attesting under penalty of perjury that they are in this small, small, small group of people for whom earning a living within the United States is a privilege, not a right. It's all right there in the law. You've just never read it. But back to the definition of income. Why has the Supreme Court defined income? Well, that's because there is no definition for income in the tax code. Imagine a body of law that purports to tax income that never defines income. Yes, my friends, it's all part of the government's flim-flam that's been run on you for your entire life concerning income taxation and what you think it is, because you've been socialized to believe this and such, what you think it is versus what it really is when you read the law. And if you'd like to know more about that, a lot more about that, I want to encourage you to go to drreality.news, pick yourself up a copy of Income Tax Shattering the Myths. But I have to warn you, you are going to be pissed off. When you see the evidence, when you see what the law really says, and when you determine what the government has actually done and how they have lied to an entire nation committing what I refer to as the largest financial crime in the history of the world, you are going to be pissed. Now, what you do about that is up to you. I don't know how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have looked at the information and income tax shattering the mist and chosen to leave the system. You, you may not be that guy, but you should know, should you not, what the truth is and that the government is running a flim-flam on you. And while you're at drreality.news, there's two other things that might be very useful to you. One is the Withholding Guide for Businesses, which talks about the truth. It's very short. It's like 13, 14 pages. Uh, I designed it so that people who want to leave the system can take that to their payroll department, to their boss, who, depending on circumstances, and show it to them and say, look, it's just very short, 13 to 14 pages. Give that a read and then let's talk. Because there is absolutely no way to rebut the facts once you see what the law really says. And for the purpose of the narrow purpose of withholding from a paycheck, I designed the business withholding handbook. The other one that many people will find interesting and have found interesting is the business guide for W-9 and 1099. I hinted about that a moment ago concerning people who own their own businesses, and they're constantly being requested to fill out W-9s, which, when they do, declares that what they're doing is not a constitutionally protected right, but rather a government-granted privilege. <laughs> Yeah, you're probably thinking this is insane, right? But that's what happens every time you fill out a W-9. You're attesting that you're not actually exercising a constitutional right. You are engaged in a government-granted privilege. And the W-9-1099 guide, just like the withholding handbook, details in about 13 pages what the law really says. And people who own their own business have used this to considerable success. When somebody they're doing business with says, hey, man, I need you to fill out this W-9, 
Like, well, not really. Here, read this. Boom. End of story in the majority of cases. With all that said, to get the full and complete picture of what the United States government has done, the largest financial crime in the history of the world, you need to read Income Tax Shattering. It's not 400 pages. It's going to be the most mind-blowing 400 pages you have ever read. You have my word on that. Also, if you want to find out about <laughs> establishment flimflams while you're there, grab yourself a copy of Body Science. And when you read that, you will learn that virtually everything that you have understood to be true of physiology, with a specific emphasis on nutritional physiology, has been, much like the income tax, just another establishment lie. But the good thing about reading body science is you can never get flim-flammed again. Once you read body science, it will give you a frame of reference. Anything that the establishment, whether it's some industry-funded bogus research, whether it's some statement by the United States government, whether it's from the American Heart Association, once you've completed body science, you will have all of the information up here. So as you look at these various preposterous statements, you will, for the first time in your life, know that they are preposterous and it empowers you to make the best and most correct decisions for your health in your life. And by purchasing Income Tax Shattering the Myths, Body Science, uh, one of the handbooks, not only do you get amazing, fabulous information worth well more than the cost of the product, you help me stay here for you. Thanks.